Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. And as we have been doing all season here, we are joined by another candidate. This is our sixth candidate episode for season four. And to round off with our final candidate of season four, we are joined today by Claudia Zapata out of Texas. Thank you for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, I love podcasting, had my own for a short while. <laughs> so I commend you for being able to keep up with it. It It is, um, it is something. <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> I definitely try. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very much a process, but I do appreciate you coming on today and talking with us about your platform and, you know, what it is that you want to do for the state of Texas. I kind of want to just start right there because on your website, you know, like you said that you are running for the 35th congressional district of Texas. I know that Texas is currently in the process of redistricting. So you're not mm -hmm. sure exactly what it'll look like when they're done in a couple months here. Actually, they probably should be done by the time this episode comes out. Uh, but, you know, as far as that, that is concerned, do you plan on representing the 35th district no matter what, or how is that going to look once the redistricting is over? Um, so I am not the kind of person that believes that you should run just to run. I 100% I believe that you should be representative of the area. So the way that I have gone about it and the way that I plan on, on running is I'm going to run in whichever district represents the most people east of I-35 within Central Texas, um, especially um, East Austin, like East Travis County, East Hayes County, um, just because that's where I'm from, that's where my family's at, that's where my friends are located. Um, so depending on how redistricting goes, it, uh, it may be that I'm not running for 35, but a whole new district or a district below us that was extended or, or 21 or 38. It just, it really, really depends on, on what the outcome is. Right. And, you know, I, I think one of the questions that I have asked so many people who have come on, you know, like candidates for all different types of positions is, you know, like, why are you running for the office that you're running for? So specifically, you know, for you, you're running for Congress. So why is your heart kind of like running for Congress and not for a different position of any type? Um, so I really believe that we need to completely eradicate our ideas of using local positions and school board positions as stepping stones. Um, because frankly, that is the rhetoric that is shoved down uh, people's throats when they mention that they're going to run for office is to start local. Um, however, I would say that local politics actually requires 
tons more experience. Um, I don't believe that you should run for school board because it's a quote unquote easy seat and like a very good beginner seat because it's not. Um, you're, you're making decisions that directly affect the livelihood of, of our students. Um, even like at county commissioner level, um, you have a lot closer and more direct impact with the work that it is that you do and what you advocate for. Um, and so I would, I mean, I would argue that it, it actually takes much more experience and someone whose heart is actually set on wanting those positions, um, not just someone who sees it as a stepping stone, because then that also means that we see higher turnover rates in those local um, positions, which just creates problems for folks. So it's like, we don't want career politicians, right? We want people who want those seats because they want those seats and have, have worked hard and that's their end goal. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, <laughs> you would think that the people who are running for the positions they're running for actually want to be in that position. So, you know, it, it's interesting that I haven't heard it framed that way before, but that is a very good explanation. But, you know, interestingly enough, when we were talking before, what I found was that you have quite a few different ideas that I haven't really heard in other places or maybe not heard as much. And so before I dive into all the different specifics of your platform, I wanted to touch on the first thing that caught my eye when I looked at your, your, uh, your platform is all the issues that you had laid out. You had a farm workers bill of rights. Now I have to say that when it comes to agricultural workers, that is not something that I hear most politicians speaking about in general. So not only do I not hear about this topic brought up nearly enough, if at all, I never hear of anything called like a farm workers bill of rights. Can you dive into this a little bit for me and just tell me what exactly is in this le proposed legislation and why is this important to you? Mm -hmm. So a farm workers bill of rights, um, one, I, I wanna say that most politicians maybe haven't talked about it or brought it up because they've just never experienced it, never lived it. Um, however, I come from a family of farm workers um, who did migrate like during the school years and even before they went to school, starting like at the age of five, um, you know, working in fields. Um, and I still know tons of folks who go out and, and work in the fields, um, even throughout this pandemic. And so a farm workers bill of rights um, is, is needed in order to protect um, one, the workers um, and kind of, uh, I guess I would say like health and safety around the workers, but also um, about pay and organizing, like labor organizing um, that's al allowed um, on these um, farms, agricultural centers. Uh, this is not, I'm, I wouldn't be, I'm not the first person to mention like, hey, we need a Farm Workers Bill of Rights. There has been work and there's actually draft um, policy legislation that um, I 100% stand by that was drafted by Farm Workers United. Um, so you can go to their website and they have um, a proposed Farm Workers Bill of Rights. Um, but really it's about one, making sure that we have protections in place um, in order to make sure that farm workers have, for example, designated water breaks, um, that sort of thing. Um, I, I'm thinking about legislation that's here in Texas. We have, is I'm trying to remember it's HB or SB 
three or four, I can't remember. There's a whole bunch of <laughs> terrible pieces of legislation. Um, but for example, there's one during the special session right now with where they are wanting to take away water breaks from construction workers. Um, and I know, <laughs> right? And they're they're trying to limit it, I know. Um, I think right now, uh, law states that um, once every hour, construction workers are allowed to have like a 10 to 15 minute water break. Um, and they're actually trying to do away with that um, and say that it should be up to the company um, and like OSHA requirements to determine what that looks like. Um, and this is the same thing that we have going on um, within farm work, within like the farm workers um, sector as well, um, to where we have limits on on water usage, bathroom usage, food. Um, there's no sort of of planning in regards to heat because we know that climate change is only getting worse. It's only getting hotter, um, and we're not putting out those protections. Um, additionally, um, labor organizing in terms of like unionizing um, um, farm workers, um, SCOTUS maybe about a month ago released um, a, a verdict that said that labor organizers were not allowed to unionize um, on the actual premises of, of uh, where farm workers were located. And I'm just like, so how are you supposed to unionize these folks if you're not allowed to go uh, to the fields where they're located? So you're telling me that we have to do a whole bunch of work to try to track down folks and find them either like at their place of residence or host something like at a business somewhere and just hope that some folks come up. Um, it, it's, it's kind of crazy. And so SCOTUS released that, like I said, maybe about a month or so ago, um, which undid um, decades of work that Cesar Chavez has, has fought for. Uh, so I definitely think that we need to have that Farm Workers Bill of Rights because consistently, time and time again, um, you may not have uh, understood and, and, and at the time that, hey, these hands were picked by, by someone less fortunate than me. Um, but I mean, that that's the truth of it. Right. And uh, we just we don't have enough people advocating for those that are literally putting the food on our table. Right. Um, and to me, it's just it's absolutely mind blowing that we don't have more folks talking about it um, because it, it's such crucial work. Um, and, and to think how underpaid and underserved and overlooked these folks are, it's like it it makes me sad, but more so it makes me like want to fight someone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can completely understand that. And there is inequities all over our country. This is, you know, like yes. the reasons why we are seeing so many people get activated politically. We are thankfully seeing more and more people, you know, like protest and organize around these, these inequalities that we're seeing across the country. And one of the industries that sees a huge amount of inequality is our healthcare system. I know that when we spoke previously, you had spoken about, you know, like specific changes that you wanted to make to the healthcare system if you were elected. Could you tell the audience what exactly would you do, like, you know, your first opportunity to propose healthcare legislation? Um, I would say capping generic um, pharmacy prescriptions, um, capping their price. Um, I have been lucky enough that like my entire life I had insurance 
However, um, whenever I quit my job in order to run for office, because there's, I mean, there's a lot more that I could say about that, but I had to quit my job in order to run for office. And I had, um, uh, work sponsored, um, healthcare. And I'm currently one of the millions of uninsured throughout the U S right now. And I have asthma, um, and a severe peanut allergy. So I also have an EpiPen, um, I had made sure that I got all of my prescriptions, like right before my, my insurance went out and ended, Yeah, I made sure to get all of like my asthma, like my Prozac. I was like, okay, get this renewed, get this renewed, uh, just so that way I have it on me. Um, however, I didn't think about my EpiPen. And so just this last weekend, I went to Walgreens and I was trying to see how much the EpiPen would be, um, out of pocket. Um, and they were giving me a price of $318 and something cents. And so I was like, okay, um, that's definitely not going to happen. Um, I will just keep my expired EpiPen on me at all times. Um, and until it's discolored or until I don't, some miracle (laughs) occurs, then I'm just going to have to use this expired EpiPen to save my life if I have to. Um, and so there's just cases where it's like the EpiPen, um, insulin, um, even in some cases like penicillin um, or just other, um, I want to say like heart disease related medications, which are completely necessary, um, uh, basically like life-saving treatments um, that folks need. And it's very common as well. Um, So I think that we should cap the prices of those uh, because there's no reason why it should be so inflated, um, especially to like these ridiculous prices. Um, when I, for example, when I did the math on how um, the much the price difference was, but with my EpiPen pre, like having insurance and then post not having insurance, um, it's about like a two hundred and fifty dollar difference. Um, and so I'm just like, then there's no reason for there to be such a large markup, um, especially if our generic prices are commonly a lot lower. And we know that this is something that folks need. So it just, it doesn't make sense to me that we would continuously allow the market to, to regulate and kind of monopolize um, on these higher priced generic prescriptions that folks use. <laughs> Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And it it definitely needs to be addressed, right? Because as we've seen time and time again, medical bankruptcies are like the number one form of bankruptcies in America. And so the prices of all related healthcare costs are just way too high right now. So Mm -hmm. we are seeing inequalities there. So we definitely need to see some type of just some kind of change to that system. And as, as well as healthcare, there's also another system that I wanted to ask you about, which is our education system. When mm-hmm. we spoke about this before, you were saying that access to education was something that was very important to you, not just nationally, but also within your own district, where you were saying that the infrastructure of your school systems was lacking, to say the least. Could you tell me a little bit more about what your thoughts around, you know, like, expanding access to education looks like and what exactly you think the federal government should be doing to help out the education system? Yes. So I think that access to education, and I think the reason that we have not seen a lot of 
policies that actually truly get to the heart of, of access to education is because we haven't had people who are serving us, who have lived in these areas where there is very poor um, just school infrastructure. So like, for example, within my district, um, we have schools that have zero to little ventilation, like where the AC breaks down at least like five times a year. And in Texas, that is absolutely ridiculous. We have schools that consistently flood um, to where even, I, I think we made national news maybe like two years ago where Palm Elementary within my district, um, kids had kids and, and teachers had to, I think they literally had, um, like uh what would it, like what would you call them like tanks um like rolling up to the front of the school and helping evacuate teachers and students who were trapped there um wow. it, it it's absolutely ridiculous and so i know that there's been talks about a green new deal for public schools and i am a hundred million percent behind that um because i just think that we can talk about wanting to make schools green and modernize them, but the thing is not all of, not, not everywhere is starting in the same place. So like for me, it's like first, before we, we can get to that, let's first make these schools like livable. <laughs> let's first make sure that we are taking care of the health and safety concerns that we have that exist within our schools. Right. Um, and, and that just goes for, for, primary, um, like uh, elementary, middle, high school within my district. Um, but then when I also think about terms of like access to education, um, you have to think about policies that work in line um, with working class families. Um, so I do believe that we need to provide uh, universal pre-K. Um, for example, in my instance, my mom made like $2,000 over the threshold in order to qualify for pre-K. And that's such a negligible amount um, for her to have to spend like $5,000 out of pocket for me to have gone to daycare instead. Um, it, it's such a, a negligible amount. So I think providing universal pre-K is definitely needed. And on top of that, making it full day of pre-k right now pre-k is like half a day but right. for a working class family that is literally impossible because how is it that you have um people who work full-time jobs and how are they supposed to care for their kids you know if they have to pick them up at, at 12 o'clock 1 p.m 2 p.m and then return to their jobs it kind of defeats the purpose of of providing that that like means of like um in terms of like providing just like the pre-K in general. Um, so I definitely think that we need to switch over to a full day like pre-K format yeah. um, just because it's much more favorable to working class families who are actually the ones who rely on and use pre-K the most. Um, in terms of access to education and higher education, um, I strongly believe um, in non-traditional pathways to college. Yeah. Um, I was a transfer student. I transferred to three different universities before I finally settled. Um, and I, at my time at UT, I was the director of the non-traditional student agency. Um, so that means all of your international students, veterans, um, 
transfer students and students over the age of 25. Um, and I basically just worked with campus administrators um, to try to figure out like, okay, how do we review our admissions process? Okay, how do we, um, let's think about who it is that we hire into like VP of, of enrollment. Uh, let's think about the type of thought that we put into when we're thinking about the pipelines to college. Um, I am all for a free college, free college, university, um, vocational and trade schools. Um, I highly believe that we need to uh, reevaluate the way it is that we perceive trade and vocational training um, in schooling because it is 100% needed and it is a very easy way to elevate people um, out of poverty. It is an extremely easy way to help folks start creating that generational wealth that everyone seems to be talking about, about how it is that we break <laughs> that cycle of poverty. Yeah. Um, and so we just need to stop forcing a traditional four-year um, institutional route down people's throats. Um, because frankly, it, does, it just doesn't work for everyone. And I mean, I went to a four-year university and I'm starting to question like why did I do that to myself um but uh, I, I definitely believe that there's um, a multitude of of different things that we could do um starting from making sure that folks have easier access to um financial aid for example um I believe that we it, I can get into some very nuanced policies um, about about education. So I guess it just depends on how much do you want to know? Well, you know, I, th I think one of the things that I want to talk to you about that we, you know, like spoke about the last time that we spoke, well, I think you had two things that I wrote down that I thought were very interesting. Because again, just very different ideas that I'm used to hearing. They, they make sense. They're just not what I'm used to hearing. Uh, one of the one of them was the national portal for like for transfer students. So that, yes. you know, like you can kind of eliminate some of these like restrictions that transfer students have where they want to go from one university to the next and then they can't because the the credits won't transfer. I know that a lot of people have dealt with that. I've had friends have to essentially spend an additional like $50,000 to complete mm -hmm. their degree because of that level of restriction. And then you also had banning the requirement for college entrance exams, which I thought was very yes. interesting. Could you speak about those two things? Yes, so um, like I said, I was a transfer student, transferred three times. Um, and because of that, I lost, it was I think between like 60 and 65 credits, um, which is a lot. <laughs> I mean, in money, that's thousands of dollars. Yes, I, I mean, that that's like tens of, of, of thousands of dollars for me. Um, and so I just believe that for example, um, we shouldn't have any barriers or restrictions um, about like credits and, and credits transferring and not transferring um, and only having certain relationships between certain institutions. Um, so for example, when I transferred from NYU to UT Austin, um, none of my credits from NYU works, none of them. None of them were accepted. However, UT Austin accepts like ACC, which is our, our community college here, like accepts like all of their credits. And so for me, it just didn't make sense. And I'm not like crapping on community colleges at all, but it just didn't make sense to me that I went and got this 
other education and only because it didn't match directly and, and because they didn't have like a previous partnership with NYU, you know, I was losing out on all my credits. Um, and that's because I even tried appealing them and provided syllabi and everything. Um, and so I just believe that we should have much more transparency around that. Um, and I think creating like this transfer student kind of portal center um, to where students could see what credits transferred into, into which schools um, and which schools had partnerships with each other. So that way there was like an easier understanding, I think provides just much more tools for students to be able to empower themselves um, and also save themselves thousands of dollars. Um, I, I, I mean, I believe that all credits should be able to transfer within any school within the United States. Like if you're in an accredited university, there is no reason why you should not accept a credit from a different college. Um, and so, I mean, that's legislation that I would want to put forward um, because it's just, it's a way to exploit folks and make money off of them. It's about, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about making money, right? It's sure. about the profits that you have from not accepting certain credits and forcing kids to retake, you know, these core classes um, or even some upper level classes. Um, it's just, it's lost on me. Why it is that that's still allowed. Um, and that goes leading into banning college entrance exams as requirements. Um, I 100% I believe that uh, we need to get away from using testing as a means of of um, determining someone's ability to learn. Um, because I believe that when you are applying to college and, and when you're thinking about that, um, it's not so much like really how smart you are, but it's more so about like, what is your ability to learn? What is your ability to ability to run with whatever it is that you learn while at that college and university and do something with it. Um, and testing just isn't a good means in order to, to, to be able to figure that out. I mean, it's also, it depends on your environment too, wherever you're located. So if you're one of the students who doesn't have any freaking AC in their school, but you're expected to still, you know, test at the highest possible, you know, top 1%. It's like, please uh, tell me, like, how does that make any sense? It's not fair. It's not equitable. Um, students are, are going through, through different things depending on their location. Um, and when you're in a really un just underfunded state like Texas when in terms of education. Um, it's just, I, I, I truly believe that there is no reason that we should have those college entrance exam requirements. Um, it's nowhere written within law or within the Department of Education. Um, it's not codified. Uh, I, even the people who make the college entrance exams aren't a part of the federal government in any way. So it's not the federal government that's doing this. These are private for-profit corporations um, that are making these tests um, that then sell like, hey, you know, get this study guide or, hey, we have classes. It's really, it's a means of selling and making money. Um, yeah. And so to be doing that off of the backs of, of people's hopes and dreams. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I understand completely where you're coming from. And what we are seeing is, you know, a system that is focused primarily on profit because that, that, that is mm -hmm. the true, you know, meaning or the true reason behind that, right? That's the reason why you don't accept 
transfer credits is the reason why you know you mm-hmm. force people to get these these entrance exams. So I do appreciate you kind of calling that out for what it is. With that being said, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have more with our candidate. Stay tuned. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana, that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. thought listeners has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side well then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode bathing beauties beads is a full service bead shop in the heart of downtown missoula whether it's seed beads semi-precious stones vintage beads or just materials to make a project they have something for every person and every price range not from missoula don't worry they have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So Claudia, you know, before we went on the break, you know, we were talking about education and the different like ideas that you had for that. And, you know, the question that I really want to ask you now is, you know, like what was like the moment in your life that politically activated you? I know that for a lot of different people, it can be, you know, something that happened, you know, maybe like in high school or maybe like after college. I know for a lot of people that got activated in 2016 watching Bernie Sanders come to a rise but you know like what was it for you that made you more or less get politically like tuned in Mm -hmm. so I and I know that I mentioned this before uh like in our pre-little meeting um but I have always been (laughs) into politics I I do not know why no one in my family knows why either um, but I've, I've always wanted to make a difference in the world and through people's lives. And I always thought the best means of that was government. However, I think a lot of what really impacted me was just what I lived and the stories that were told to me from my family as I was growing up. Um, so, for example, the reason I'm super passionate about farm workers and having a farm workers bill of rights is um, I, I slightly mentioned that my family, I come from a line of, of farm workers. Um, but like, I mean, I grew up with my mom telling me stories and to this day, um, 
and I'm sure that she suffered a little bit of PTSD from this, um, about how when her and my grandmother and, and my tios and tias would be out picking cotton or citrus or corn, um, how they would have pesticides sprayed over them. Um, and there was no sort of warning, it just, it happened. Um, and about how they weren't allowed to have bathroom breaks. So, I mean, she specifically remembers about this one time in a citrus orchard um, that she went and she was about five or six years old um, and had to go super badly. And she remembers asking if she could go to the bathroom and they said, no, you either pee on yourself or pee in the field. And so she decided to go and squat behind a, a, an orange tree and she, you know, went, went to the bathroom out there. Um, and she said she remembers she got like a leaf and used that to like wipe herself down. But I mean, just like as a child, just the amount of, of impact that that has on you is just un, unbeknownst to me. But, and the sad thing is that it just, it doesn't stop there. Um, she continued, my family, we don't come from money. And so they had to continue this work all the way up until people left for college or the military. Um, so my mom, when even when she was in high school, talks about how when she started her period um, and they were still doing like this, this farm work, um, they still did not allow for bathroom breaks. And uh, we were too poor to afford any like menstrual products. Um, and so she had to literally free bleed all over herself um, and how she would run to like a different part of the field and like try turning her underwear like inside out to try to like make sure that one side was not more bloody than the other and just like trying to clean herself up. And it hurts my heart knowing that my mom and my aunts had to live through that and it upsets me to think that that is very likely, and I'm, I can almost say it with 100% certainty, that it's continuing to happen now. Um, there is no reason why people should be so um, degraded um, and just looked upon um, as, as being so, so less than human that you have to pee in a field or free bleed all over yourself. Um, that they can't even allow you to go to the freaking restroom. Um, so I am very, very passionate about, about working class folks and especially farm workers. Um, I'm, my grandfather, um, maybe about like the age of nine, where I is a, another, I guess, touch point where I kind of realized like, wow, like we need to do something. I need to do something, anything. Um, he was diagnosed with, um, I can't remember the name of the type of stomach cancer, but he was diagnosed with stomach cancer when I was about nine years old. Um, and like I mentioned, we come, I come from a very, very poor, like very, very poor family. Um, and he made the choice to live in hospice, or I guess like die in hospice, rather than go to MD Anderson Hospital in Houston and receive the life-saving treatment um, for his cancer that was very treatable, all because he didn't wanna put my family in any sort of medical debt because he just didn't know how we would be able to 
to go after it. He didn't want to be a burden to our family after he died. And so I, sorry, I'm like, I can like, I could literally start crying right now because it just, how can we live in a world where that is okay? Where millions of people make the choice to not get treatment because of the expense. So these very easily treatable things then snowball into these larger medical issues that end up taking their lives. It, it is my family and my experiences are my driving force. They, they have shaped me and I am a fighter. <laughs> I am a fighter. So while these stories are, they, they hurt um, and there's like, you know, a lot of pain that's, that's, that's there that exists. Um, I carry them with me and I use them as fuel, um, because over my dead freaking body, will I allow this to happen to anyone else? Point blank. Hey, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the passion. Honestly. I mean, this, there are so many people who are suffering around the country and mm -hmm. their voices go largely ignored uh, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I, I think one of those reasons is because, you know, we have so many kind of like restrictions in place that kind of keep people in power who currently are in power. And so I kind of wanted, the next thing I want to talk to you about is about like voting rights. Now you're mm -hmm. in Texas right now and there have been some, pe some people on the local level who have been going after voting rights there, but we're not just seeing it in Texas, we're seeing it all over the country. We saw it in mm -hmm. Georgia, we've seen it in other states as well. What exactly do you believe should be done on a national level to address voting inequities so that maybe hopefully we can get some politicians who are a little more obstinate out of, uh, out of Congress? I think you mentioned that the representative in your current district might be one of those people. Yes. Um, so I think that there, it, when we look at when our constitution was written and who was written by, it was written by white men who are my age or younger. Um, I'm 27 right now. And I think roughly folks were between like the ages of like 23 and 27. And that's who wrote the constitution that um, our lives are built upon. Um, and the reason for that is because it's, it needs to be, and they've always meant for it to be a young electorate, a young, vibrant electorate that's making these decisions um, and, and coming up with fresh, new, creative ways in, in order to basically preserve our democracy. Um, as in terms of voting rights, um, I believe that we 100% need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, I also know that we have the For the People Act, which includes just a slew of, of policies that I think would very much help protect, um, protect the sanctity of democracy, but at the same time, empower more people of color and working class people to actually be able to utilize their voices. Um, because we're in a redistricting year, I wanna talk about gerrymandering. Um, so TX35 as written was actually found illegal uh, by the Supreme Court, but yeah. it was, 
I forget what the reason was why we couldn't go back and undraw it, but there was a reason <laughs> why we couldn't go back and redraw it. Um, but TX35, as it's shaped, is illegal. Um, and the reason that we're able to have seats like this is not solely just a a one side. It's not solely just a conservative issue. Yeah. Um, it's an issue that exists amongst Democrats and Republicans. There are backroom deals that are made all the time across party lines um, in order to make sure that those who are in power preserve that power. Um, and those who have been working by each other's sides for decades continue to work by each other's sides for decades because they look out for one another. Um, the incumbent um, who represents TX35 is Congressman Lloyd Doggett. And while maybe decades ago, <laughs> because he's been serving in Congress in Central Texas since 1995, um, which I was one year old <laughs> at that time, um, he may have at one point properly represented the folks within this area. However, the demographics have shifted drastically. And so for someone to hold on to their seat for almost over two decades um, without actually doing anything to fight for it or to honor it, um, it, it we, we need term limits. <laughs> we need term um, limits. I, I'm 100% am, am supportive of term limits. And while that might seem kind of like backwards in the sense, like, why would you run for Congress, but also impose term limits on yourself is because I'm not a selfish jerk. Um, I completely understand that we need to help pave the way for newer and fresher ideas, um, that it shouldn't be something where it, the seats do not belong to people, they belong to the people. There's a big difference. So there's a lot of folks um, that I, I like to call them Dixiecrats, uh, because let's face it, that's what they are, um, within the district who are older and, and predominantly white, um, who tend to get mad and get very, very defensive when I say that I'm running against Lloyd Doggett. Oh. Um, and, and so people can get really, really fired up very easily. But the thing is, I don't believe that any blue will do. Um, I believe that we need someone, we need people who are representative of us, uh, of the constituency, but also that are going to fight for it um, and make sure that they use their seat and wield it to actually do things with it. Um, I think that people receive way too much um, praise for playing the defense instead of playing good offense. Um, I, I constantly think that, um, and I even have like my own little bit about like the Texas Democrats and their, their leave to DC and coming back and stuff. Um, I believe that there's, for some of them, for some of them, there's a little way too much praise for playing the defense. It's like, yes, of course, if you're a Democrat and you're just, you know, like a basic good human being, you're going to stand up for the least of us, right? Like you're going to advocate for trans kids. You're going to advocate for voting rights. You're going to advocate for healthcare. Um, of course, you're going to do those things. That's the bare minimum, right? right? But 
if you're also within these positions of power, what are you also doing with that? Um, how are you helping the cause by actually producing legislation? To me, I think that's, I mean, that's the most important reason why we have elected officials is because they're supposed to be the ones that are not only representing us, but also bringing about policy. So if you don't breed policy, then it's like, what the hell are you there for? <laughs> that, that is a great question. And, you know, before we kind of transition away from voting rights, you know, I, I do want to, you know, reference that, you know, speaking about this, we also talked about, you know, you had the belief that incarcerated people should be able to vote. Now, this is a topic that I don't hear a whole lot. So why is it important in your eyes that people who are currently incarcerated should still retain their ability to vote while in jail? So I, there's kind of like a two-parter thing that I, like, I guess, two-parter policy positions that I have. But in regards to being able to vote while still incarcerated, um, all the time we talk about rehabilitation, right? And about what the re-entering to society looks like and how supposedly after being in jail or being in prison, you're supposed to all of a sudden be this like new changed person because you know being beaten down and locked up is supposed to make you like see the light um and make you become like this great member productive like to society and you're never going to do a bad thing again right that's the perceived idea of what it is that prisons and jails do um however we do nothing for people while they are incarcerated to help them maintain some sort of sanctity or, or dignity in order to help be those productive members of, of society. Um, and a lot of the times um, not having the right to vote, which I think is like one of your basic, right? Like one of your basic human rights. Um, I believe that folks who are incarcerated should be able to have some buy-in as to who it is that represents them because there are progressive folks such as myself or progressive organizations. Um, like I'm thinking about here within like the, the, my district, like Mano Amiga or Austin Justice Coalition who fight for incarcerated individuals' rights all the time. And there are local leaders and state level and federal level leaders who want to make change and empower incarcerated individuals, but it's just not getting enough traction because commonly prisons are located in your more rural areas, um, which are going to be predominantly red, uh, predominantly conservative. Um, and so I believe that you need to allow people to have their, their voice heard. Now, the second part to that is not, it has to do with like counting on where the vote is coming from per se. Um, for example, because we're in a redistricting year, um, there is an issue regarding um, how to determine on the census, um, how, how to figure out and how to count uh, incarcerated peoples. Um, do you count them as being within the district where they are housed or will they where they will be returning to, like where they're from. Um, and right now it's currently counted as where they're housed, 
So like, um, for example, like in Huntsville here in Texas, we have a prison. And so everyone that's incarcerated there, the, those census numbers go towards the Huntsville area um, uh, census data. And census data is used in order to um, redraw maps. It's used in order to, to write policy. It's used to budget. It is used like in every which way that you can think of. Right. Um, and so I believe that we should do away with that and really um, look at where the community, like look at where these pipelines are. Because I mean, we talk about like the pipelines to prison all the time. Um, and after that, it's like, it, after we stop, after we talk about like the pipelines to prison, um, we always talk about like, these are the ways that we can mitigate it. And these are things that we can do to help curve that pipeline. However, I believe that a lot of the activist conversation stops there and it doesn't go to, okay, well, once someone is incarcerated, what are different things that we can do as a society to help empower and uplift these folks to actually have the ability to, to be productive members of society um, and have that second chance whenever they're released and have that second chance to come back home to an, an area that has different resources that, that practices restorative justice. Um, so yes, I, I definitely believe that we need to end the, the, the gerrymandering census counting incarcerated peoples in their area. Um, and I believe that incarcerated folks should have the right to vote. Okay. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, too often, you know, when we have this conversation, it, it feels like it always gets just, you know, like bogged down with the whole, like, oh, well, they're in jail. So why do you care about their rights? So on and so forth. And that dehumanizing language can actually translate to people afterwards. You see people still don't have their rights when they get out of jail, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, probation, parole, and then, you know, it feels like it might take forever for some of these people to ever get their rights back. So I do appreciate your stance on this. Uh, I think one of the last questions I want to ask you today, you know, is again, I'm kind of more or less focused on, you know, where you're at in Texas. I know that, you know, in the Southern states, you know, the topic of immigration comes up even more so than it does anywhere else in the country. You had mentioned that you wanted to see immigration reform and you spoke about Title 42. Can you yeah. tell the audience a little bit about what Title 42 is and, you know, like what your stance on immigration reform is? Okay, so um, in terms of Title 42, um, Title 42 is a, like a, I forgot what exactly the word for it is, but it's more like a, a health, a health order. Um, and I believe it came from like the Health and Human Services under uh, administrate under the Trump administration. Um, and Title 42 is currently still in place. Um, immigrant rights activists are calling on the Biden administration to rescind it, but there is no word on whether or not that is moving. It likely will not move um, because no matter how blue some people may be, they just do fail to act um on immigrants rights issues um title 42 allows for folks to be denied entry regardless of whatever it is the reason so even if you are an asylum seeker people tend to think okay asylum seekers there is a path for folks in order to apply for asylum here within the united states however title 42 
um, was proposed on was 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 I guess released during the Trump administration, um, whenever COVID first hit, right. and it's basically um, an excuse to keep people, even asylum seekers, like I said, out of the United States, and gives folks who are working like border patrol. Um, the right and customs, uh, the right to deny folks entry to the United States based on this preconceived notion um, that they would pose a health uh, concern for bringing over COVID into the United States. Um, we have seen time and time again since Title 42 came out that there is no such um, data that says that this is true. There is nothing backing that up. Health and Human Services, the new secretary, uh, Secretary Barrera, um, who just um, was, I guess, was put into place by the Biden administration, even came out and said, I don't know why it is that we have Title 42. Um, we have no data, no collection uh, that is backing up the fact that supposedly immigrants are bringing in and leading to COVID spikes along the border. Right. Um, so uh, we are calling on, and I will continue to call on the Biden administration to rescind Title 42 because it, I believe, um, and I, this to date number may be like a little out of touch, but the last time that I looked at it was in like towards the end of July and it has allowed for over 170,000 people, which includes like families and children to be denied entry um, or asylum at the border, um, which, then feeds into this entire GOP driven narrative that we do have a border crisis and that it's terrible. And it's like, yes, we do have a crisis, but it's more of like a humanitarian. <laughs> uh, we, we do. It's more of like a humanitarian crisis because people are are trying to come in for for terms of safety. They're they're fleeing um, what different insurrections that they may be having like in, in South America um, or, or cartel issues that are going on within Mexico. And we need to welcome folks with open arms. Um, I would not be here if my grandma had not crossed over um, illegally in the sixties. I, I would not, I would not exist. Um, and I would like to think that me and my family are working, productive members of society. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I believe that we need to rescind Title 42. We need to codify DACA so that way dreamers are, are protected by law. Um, I believe that in terms of like immigration reform, um, it's so nuanced and there's so many, <laughs> there's so many um, different like uh, policies built in within like uh, the blanket umbrella term of like immigration reform. Yeah. Um, but I would say starting with prioritizing kind of like an immediate citizenship um, pathway, like I'm talking like month to month pathway process for folks who worked during all of like the pandemic. So that includes like your farm workers, that includes your frontline workers who worked at grocery stores, 
who've worked in restaurants, whether it's like back of the house, front of the house. Um, that includes folks like who are, are doctors, who are nurses, um, who are here um, and, and that are not citizens. And it prioritizes giving them citizenship because we have, there's no way that we would have survived without them. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I again, I, I thank you for bringing like some light to this issue because it feels like right now, you know, kind of where we're at in our political cycle, it seems like the news has been dominated by, you know, one or two things, right? And these are, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is a very important topic to be talking about on a day in and day out basis, but it also feels as though the news is almost exclusively talking about that. And meanwhile, all these other issues are more or less getting swept underneath the rug. So thank you for taking a moment to speak about it. If people want to learn more about your campaign, like where can they learn more about you? Like where can they find you online? Uh, definitely. So my website is www.conclaudia.com. Um, so that is C-O-N-C-L-A-U-D-I-A.com. Um, translated to English, that just means with Claudia. Um, I don't like like the regular like Claudia for Congress or eh, like. <laughs> um, and then all of my social media is at Poder con Claudia. So that is P-O-D-E-R-C-O-N-C-L-A-U-D-I-A. Um, and I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, it's hard keeping up with all of those, but I am on all of those all the time. Um, and on my website, that's where you can find information on how to volunteer, or just stay up to date with receiving newsletters on what it is that I do in the community because I am first and foremost, an activist and community organizer and politician, maybe second or third. <laughs> and I guess uh, lastly, like when is the primary election in Texas? So whew, it depends on how the maps are redrawn. So okay. <laughs> I, I know that it is slated to have a March 5th, 2022 primary election date. However, because maps are being drawn so late in the process and there is likely going to be some court fighting and, and we're gonna have to wait on what courts state, um, we, my, my team is looking at the primary being in late May or early June. Okay, well, we will try to stay up to date with that as more information comes out. Claudia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really do appreciate you coming on here and talking to all of us about your platform and your issues. And if anyone is interested in learning more about your campaign, just go ahead and click in the episode description right now. There'll be some links in the description that you can click on and you can go check in with Claudia and her run for the 35th or maybe different district of Texas. We'll see, we'll see. But <laughs> thank you again for coming on. Everyone else will be right back after this quick break with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. I want to say thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. That is our final candidate episode for season four. And candidates will be coming on the podcast in somewhat of a different fashion going forward. We got a brand new 
format for season five. So I will inform everyone of that probably within the season finale. So more on that later. I want to first off, just thank my guest, Claudia Zapata, for coming on and talking with me during this podcast. This was supposed to come out uh, about like a month and a half ago. And obviously, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the podcast did get delayed a little bit. So we're playing a little bit of catch up right now. But I want to thank her for coming on the podcast. Wish her the best of luck in her race down in Texas. Early voting begins in Texas uh, in mid-February, I believe on the 14th, might be the 15th. Double check that. It is the middle of February. Runs for about like 10 or 11 days. And then the primary is on March 1st in the state of Texas. So I want to thank each and every subscriber for coming back to the podcast. If you are not currently, please turn on your notifications that you can be notified for the next episode because these podcast platforms, they're just not always the best about showing new episodes. Going to turn on those notifications. So what you can expect coming up next from the podcast, we have... Let me see here. We have four episodes left of this season going to knock these out in the next couple of weeks here. And then we will be on to season five. Got some great guests coming up. There'll be three more guests this season. And then there'll be one solo episode. I have not done a solo episode all season. So I felt like it was only right to at least get one of them in here because yeah, I just haven't done a full episode yet for by myself. So Got to get the whole talking thing in there for a full episode. Last but not least, if you have been enjoying this content, uh, please share this on social media and tag Independent Thought. Uh, that is the best way to kind of help us grow right now. So if you can, just go ahead and please share this episode, share other episodes you've listened to, share on social media, tag Independent Thought to allow some new people to discover the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And we will see you in the next episode. Talk to you then. Mm -hmm.